At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. I don't see any American dream. I see an American nightmare. We never initiate any violence upon anyone. But if anyone attacks us, we reserve the right to defend ourselves. When you're in your own nation, in your own land, you're in a position to get justice. But when you're in another man's country, in another man's land, you have to look to that other man for justice, and you'll never get it. We're nonviolent with people who are nonviolent with us. But we are not nonviolent with anyone who is violent with us. Anytime you beg another man to set you free, you will never be free. We are ready and willing to pay the price that is necessary for freedom. What price are you talking about, sir? The price of freedom is death. Welcome to Make It Plain, the show where two Christians offer reflections on the words and life of Malcolm X. I'm Philip Holmes. And I'm Taylor Gray. We are your hosts. Before we dive in, got to give y'all a few reminders. Got to do some housekeeping. Visit our website, makeitplain.co, and download the Make It Plain Season 1 discussion guide. I know you forgot. You've been like, man, I keep, I keep meaning to do it. Stop procrastinating. Go ahead and do it right now. Just press pause. Go ahead and do it and then come back. All right, and if you have listened to a few episodes, whether you joined us in season two or whether you joined us from day one in season one, please rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast that has a rating system. If they got a rating system, go up there and rate us as soon as you can. Specifically on Apple Podcasts, our goal is 300, and on Spotify, our goal is 100 ratings. It only takes you like a second to do it on Spotify. All you got to do is like press the star. You ain't got to leave a comment. We'll, we'll deal with comments later. Uh, <laughs> just just press the button and keep it moving. All right. Taylor, you ready? I'm ready, man. So this this quote comes from the ballot or the bullet speech from Malcolm X. He says this. These 22 million black victims of Americanism are waking up. They're gaining a new political consciousness. They're becoming politically mature. And as they develop this political maturity, they're able to see the recent trends of these political elections. They see that the whites are so evenly divided that every time they vote, the race is so close that they have to go back and count the votes all over again. 
This means that any minority that has a block of votes that stick together is in a strategic position. Either way you go, that's who gets it. You're in position to determine who goes to the White House and who stays in the doghouse. Now, you know. He said that last line like Malcolm. Hey, listen, he said it. I'm, I'm laughing because when he said it, that that's the charisma. You know, like he, he had to interact with this poetically. <laughs> so what 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 brings what what comes to mind when you hear something like this, Phil? I do have concerns about whether or not we're truly waking up. Mm-hmm. You know, when you have such a polarizing figure like Trump and you have events like January 6th, it makes you do some twisting and turning to try to justify voting, right? Especially if you're in that two-party mentality to justify voting for the Democratic Party and the Democratic Party only. Mm. Mm. The problem with the Republican Party is that there have been so many people that have stayed quiet Mm. or either left Mm. uh, as a result of Trump's presidency. Again, as a result, I think it makes the Democratic Party look even more appealing. And not even just appealing, but it makes them look like you're you're stupid if you vote Republican ever again. Like, that's the type of lingo. And, and Malcolm is like, don't be deceived, right? Well, um, let, me, let me ask you this question. Yeah. I, I want you to continue in that progression of thought. But I, I want to just make sure I understand from your perspective uh-huh. on what you're seeing right now. Sure, yeah, no, that's helpful. Do you... Do you see political mobilization and or participation trending upward from the newer generation, the younger generation. You see more people actually getting out to vote or more people trying to understand the issues more. Do you feel like that's trending upward compared to, you know, when we were younger? It's hard for me to compare it to when we were younger. Okay. And it's because it's, it's hard or to maybe even, when we came of age and sure. participate ourselves. Yeah. It's, it's again, it's, it's still hard though, because like social media makes it louder. I mean, I think there's some things right now that we think didn't exist when we were kids, but we just are aware of them. It, it wasn't that they didn't exist. It was just our lack of awareness. So yeah. I'm hesitant to say without hard data, whether or not participation is increasing. Sure. I do think that there are more people that are interested in talking about the issues. Now, whether they, whether or not that they're, they're actually going out and taking action, using their votes and so on and so forth is a completely different story. Well, I mean, you know, there's, there's still, you know, I think some um, visible elements of, I don't know if you want to call it resurgence, if you want to call it like enthusiasm or whatever, because, you know, you get reports that there's record turnouts, you know, particularly coming off of the Trump presidency. That's true. You know, and actually, that's true, because there were more votes in this particular election between Trump and Biden. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And and I mean, obviously, there's an impetus. There's uh, when you can make a uh, you can make the kind of case for voting for one candidate in response to another you know, that's going to trigger the the participation and mobilization. And, I, you know, I think I look at this quote and, and he's he's particularizing his emphasis on on black people mm-hmm. in America and saying, yo, these black folks are waking up to the scenario of society that they're involved in and also the impetus to respond politically. You know, and participate politically. They're becoming politically aware versus just accepting the circumstances. Mm-hmm. And because many of them had just gotten the opportunity to vote. Exactly. Right? Exactly. This is this is a new phenomenon in the South, and that's where a lot of the black people were. Man, but see that. So I'm glad you said that because 
in the South, and I, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to lean on you for this. It felt like there was a sense of mobilization already present in the South. It was quiet, maybe in more rural areas where like maybe there were black farmers who knew kind of how to protect their property and and mobilize in association with laws and candidates that affected their lifestyle down here. And, and I don't know, I'm thinking of the Fannie Lou Hamers of the world and, and things like that. So w- was was the South already kind of in tune with how to identify the their issues and ways to participate because, you know, like it, yeah. it ties to the Montgomery bus boycott. No, like how you mobilize down here is different than up north. I don't know. Okay. Here, I'm going to give you what I would imagine it was like going through that transition. So on the one hand, if black people didn't vote, there was no one really running for our concerns. It was just the fact that we don't get to participate and we don't have representation. After you actually get the opportunity to vote, participation becomes a lot more complex mm. because you got to realize what you're for and what you're against what benefits you and what doesn't benefit you. And this gets me back to this generation. In general, we know what we're against and what we don't like, Mm -hmm. but we don't have solutions. We don't know what we're for. And so the only time that we're mobilized to go out is when we're voting in opposition to something that we're against. Yeah. And okay. That's, I think that's well said. And the thing that I think what's captured in what you said is maybe the energy that we're sensing from this generation, you know, I, I point the cancel I point to the cancel culture dynamic mm-hmm. in terms of who is our common enemy. You know, like there's kind of this maybe at least from the social media standpoint, like a general consensus on this person's bad. We need to get rid of them from the public eye in some sense. And that has been kind of integrating into political strategy. You know, of course, you see the campaign commercials and <laughs> you see the uh, the tepia like kind of filter over a, a political candidate. Like, this candidate did this and it destroyed your community. And, mm-hmm. and then the, the lighthearted music and the prettier kind of filter goes over the other candidate that you should vote for somehow. I think still it's more conversation about politics among younger people than I've ever seen in my life. I felt ignorant when I was of age. When I first came of age, you know, of course, we're in Christian culture and it was the Republican candidate, you know. And and at the time, as we talked about in the previous episode, I was in a church environment that was predominantly white and conservative. So there was literally no question, like, you have to go vote for George Bush. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, oh, these are the things Christians are supposed to, it was culturally informed. Mm-hmm. And yet that wasn't the Christian stance. I go back home and my parents were like, <laughs> no, like, we're not going to do that. Then you see somebody like Kanye West say, George Bush doesn't care about black people. And I'm like, oh, wait a minute. I missed out on something as a Christian, but What's also about Kanye West in 2020. <laughs> <laughs> Stark contrast. But even that, like even the fact that he would enter into the fray has people looking at politics as a means of participation. There are more voices in the hip hop community, culture, entertainment that are that are being um, asked to participate in rallies to say like, hey, you know, here's the candidate. The focus on social media groups, platforms are being rallied around. So it feels like there is a sense of generational transition of participation, just blatant. I'm not saying informed. Because Malcolm's making him, he's making a point about maturity. Yeah, he says they're becoming politically mature. 
So I don't know if that just means you're going to go to the polls. But this is what makes Malcolm the revolutionary. That you can't you can't just speak to where people are. You got to cast sure. a vision, and I think sure. that's what he did here. If you want to know anything about what makes like a revolutionary or an activist dangerous to a corrupt society, it's hope, it's vision. And this brother is saying this means that any minority that has a block of votes Mm -hmm. that stick together is in a strategic position. Yeah. Imagine in the 1960s being in the seat Mm -hmm. and hearing Malcolm say that you have power in this country. Mm -hmm. You can actually bring about change. This is hope. Yes. That he's that he's preaching. Yes. Which which feels converse to what I don't know if we feel the same sense of hope right now. I think we're on the defense right now. Like to your point, we're saying we know what we don't want, but we don't have an agenda. Right. That's the conversation. It's like, what's the black agenda? I remember (laughs) Ice Cube tried to come up with a with a black agenda and, and he aligned with Trump and he got killed, bro. Like just for trying to come up with a plan and aligning with the wrong, I guess, side of the of and the that's the problem right there. Yeah. So if he got killed just for doing that, can you imagine? I, I sincerely believe that Malcolm would have applauded Ice Cube Coming for playing up. both sides. He said he tried to take it to Biden. He did. He said, and Biden said, oh, we'll get to that. Yeah. And, and of course, Biden shows his cards in that way. To say, all right, number one, you're not black if you don't vote for me. And how can a black person come up with a plan for what y'all need? You know, I got to come up with the plan. So anyway, I'm. This is this Biden is. Biden is also thinking. Okay, let's just be honest. If I'm in Biden's position, <laughs> and I got the audacity to say out loud, "You ain't black if you don't vote for me." Here's the thing: the Democrats win if we don't show up, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. As all we got to do is not vote Republican. Yeah, and we're not a threat. The, the point I think he's even making here in even terms of defining our power at the polls is a unified stance. Like if we have a sense of collectivism in the way that we vote, we do have power to shift and change like what actually happens, how the elections play out. But what really what you're describing, what we're talking about right now, a lot of what ends up happening is we get divided, you know, like are we if we get split down the middle. Then that's, that's, that's not even what happens. What what it's close because you you actually going to where I was going. But I think if 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 it's like the if it's like Malcolm describes, fifty percent of white America is progressive. Fifty percent of white America is conservative. At least those who vote Democrat or Republican, right? Mm-hmm. What typically happens is you have probably about twenty five percent of us, maybe ten percent of us that vote Republican, mm-hmm. right? Another you know twenty five percent maybe. That just like, bro, like they all crooked. I'm staying at home, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> Ain't going to make no difference anyways, right? <laughs> Which is uh, what W.E.B. Dubois did later in his life, by the way. Just a quick footnote. Go ahead and look that up. And then, and then, shout out. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then the other half of us go out and vote Democrat. Mm. Democrats win. Mm. As long as the Republicans are not able to mobilize a significant population or group of us now because there's a lot of qui- people who quietly vote i remember hanging out with some of my cousins and like like these like some you know they're they're probably middle class like brothers but they ain't you know they ain't never been assimilated right hb mm-hmm. graduate went to hbcu graduated from HBCU, yeah and you know and they would joke you know hey man you know 
you know, I'm all for, you know, Democrats and all that, but I do know there's a little extra money in my paycheck <laughs> when Republicans are in office. I'm Facts. just saying, right? Facts. So, so that's, there's, there's this mentality as well. And I think that to, to our original point, we don't have an agenda. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think maybe we have, the, the agenda is more reactionary yeah. than it is a, a proactive plan mm-hmm. to arrive at a better place. You know, actually get some things accomplished. There was, you know, obviously some some controversy recently in in terms of a, a group of black folks, loud black folks, maybe on social media or otherwise, uh, calling for the Biden administration to fulfill their promise on student loans, and they're basically saying we're we're further down after the election. We we put you in office. We're calling forth that campaign promise for student loan forgiveness. African Americans. Oh, yeah. Black people were, were rising up. And of course, we were, we're back to Charlemagne. You know, he the, the, it culminates in this interview that he has with Kamala Harris. You know, and of course, you know how she was positioned as like this progressive choice, you know, and she's supposed to represent our needs. And, and this represents proximity to the American political systems, passion and commitment to the, the black agenda or the black need or the, the community concerns. She represents that. So he has her on his show and, you know, they're talking about how these promises have not been fulfilled. Now, who is the president of the United States and are you the vice president of the United States? And she has a very um, defensive reaction to, to Charlemagne, essentially checks him on his platform and says, listen, you sound like a Republican questioning me about what we're doing or what we're going to do. Never really gets to like actually answering the question of why it hasn't been fulfilled. Didn't, didn't, wasn't she nicknamed Top Cop? I mean, listen, man. Like, I don't like the authority symbolic, to be You do what I tell you to do. Malcolm obviously has pointed to this time and time again, symbolic victory. There's a reason why, I'll say this, there's a reason why Kamala was chosen over Stacey Abrams. 100%. 100%. Stacey Abrams, based on my observations, mm-hmm. which are limited, mm-hmm. but I've seen enough, because I, I don't say this easily about any political figure, seems like she has integrity. Absolutely. And she cares about doing what she thinks, based on her convictions, is best for our community. She does. And, she- but there's a reason why Kamala was chosen over Stacey. Multiple reasons. 1,000%. And we can get into some of those other that. reasons as well. We know that. But, it, it, yeah. Again, symbolic gestures. You know, we, we got a symbolic gesture that ultimately didn't pan out to, I guess, measurable progress. It just becomes, again, the, the, the story that we keep repeating about not getting what, we're, what we want, not identifying what's on the agenda, and ultimately how to hold our elected officials accountable for promises that they do make. And I think what, what Malcolm is, is, again, to your point, he's establishing a message of, of hope. Like, this is what we can do. You know, as a community that's unified under the understanding of our investment in the political process, if we are invested in participating, if we're invested in becoming educated and aware, then we can actually accomplish some things. So as as black Christians, see, here's the thing, man, like if the message is empowerment and hope, then those who are followers of Christ I don't want to say we, we should have a monopoly, but we should have a strong voice in what it looks like to travel the pathway of hope. 
You know, we should we should be setting the agenda of this is what's going to be best for the overall good of the black community. We should have an, an, a defined stance as Christians who are black, who have, I think, a large amount of credibility to speak into how this country should change and what justice looks like and what it looks like to care for the people who are hurting and also be responsible in in the way that we consider our our moral convictions from the scriptures, we should be able to not only just talk about those in an idealistic sense, but bring some shape and some meat to what that looks like for us in this country. And I think if we just continue to rally people around the emotion of what we're not getting and the narrative of oppression that causes us so much pain, we don't get to the place of empowerment where we actually look at our block of votes, galvanize people around these issues that have been clearly defined and talked about at length, and then participate in the political process. The problem is that we have removed the art of persuasion. So, because again, when you come in up with agendas, people build agendas not on what's best, but what they think they can actually mobilize people around. Mm. So then you're not really actually getting a real solution. You're just getting something that you think you can sell or pitch that'll sound good. Right, right, right. And we need to figure out, all right, what will actually benefit black America? And I think many of us will be surprised on both sides. It's probably not going to look like a purely Republican or purely Democrat agenda. Man, there's issues on both sides. So to Malcolm's point, you got to be bipartisan. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this. What do you think about the critique of being centrist? Because that's what I... No, I hate that. (laughs) I hate that. I I hate the mush it moderate... Who who is who who's always very vague yeah. or who always saying I could see it both ways because yeah. like yeah. Re- Republicans or Democrats don't have a monopoly on ideas. Yeah. So if you're gonna like critique or talk about they're not equally good or equally bad. Like there's some yeah. it depends on the issue. Ask me what yeah. the, about the issue. And and Facts. they're not even all on the same page about Facts. like they're not consistent enough. I mean, but that's that, to issue. me like that's that's the uh, kind of the identity of the follower of Christ is that you can't, you know, just be neatly aligned with any perspective that exists in a society. There's there's exactly. a more excellent way. And, and you may find me over here interacting with this group and you may on this day and then you may find me in a different place interacting with a different group on a different day. But let's talk about the reasons why you know like there there is a there's a higher call there's a um pastor named uh william barber and and yeah i'm not going to go into kind of like his history or whatever but he essentially represents the continuation of the poor people's program Mm -hmm. and what he does is he sets very clear agendas for his church because he here's here's the thing now too we deal with this whole notion and maybe we're past this that it's wrong to bring up politics in church and even the people i think who have said that the loudest they've compromised their credibility because even by saying that they've revealed their cards their political cards but I think it, it, this, this is a powerful opportunity if we're talking about what does it mean to explore the new wave or the, the, the new expression of the black church, if we want to go there, if we're saying we're going to leave the white evangelical structure in terms of defining our faith and our theology, then how can we identify collectively as the historic representation of the black church and then ultimately cultivate a voice to say this is who we are this is how we interact with society 
I think we have an opportunity to define like even our unity around what we want in terms of issues in society, setting agendas, being prophetic in talking about what's not just needed for now, but what's needed for future generations. I think that's the opportunity we have to be distinct. And it, and it ties to our history. This is what we've always done in our best moments and our in our most identifiable moments in history is that we have actually gathered in a place with God still being our Lord, our ruler, our sovereign governor, who who tells us not only how to conduct ourselves in our personally personal lives, but how to speak truth to power how to actually hold these systems accountable to these larger, greater, wider ideas mm-hmm. of justice and love. Mm-hmm. And I think we have this opportunity now to look at this idea that Malcolm presents of saying, look, you've got this block of influence. I mean, man, like the credibility of the black church right now is not great. No. A Stacey Abrams arises out of the frustration with the black church. Or you can point towards a, a Ralph Warnock and, you know, like that that becomes even more complicated, right. you know. But I just think when I look at something like this, I do want to extract hope. You know, I want to extract a, a more excellent way or an, a, a path towards some clarity and some conviction about where we go. I appreciate the work of the Ann campaign. You know, 100%, yeah. I, I, I think they're, yeah, they're trying to mobilize like in, in a way that puts some teeth to our convictions and gives us a path to actually walk mm-hmm. instead of just talking about idealism. Because mm-hmm. the idealism and the stagnation and association with that is going to lead to further irrelevance. Because yep. like what is it? <laughs> Man, bro, we had our experiences. What is the black church right now? Right. You know, like as it relates to this political process, are candidates even like rolling up on black churches like, hey, we need some time to, to speak to your congregations. I know what's happening in some of the lo- longer historical churches that have been around for maybe a century. I mean, the, the, the black church has lost its credibility in some, not all, but in some of and many of the neighborhoods. There's still a, a, a faithful remnant that's out there. And I'm constantly encouraged, you know, I'm in a Facebook group with like African-American Pulpit Society, and I'm constantly encouraged by uh, that particular group. So if you want to know, like, how the black church is doing, talk to anyone who is doing any type of ministry on a historical black campus. Mm, okay. And the kids that they're getting... At HBCU. Are, yep. Mm-hmm, okay. And the kids that they're getting are more and more mm-hmm. unchurched. Mm-hmm. So as mm-hmm. the culture, yes. and this is happening in the broader culture as well, so this right. is not unique to the black church. Yep. And so I think that in some ways, the black church, speaking generally, is declining with the broader culture as well. It's pretty It's pretty consistent. Yeah. That's concerning as well. This is why, why Obama, right? Obama assimilated, but he assimilated to white progressivism. Mm-hmm. White people are not a monolith. Right. Right. Their values are going to be different. Uh, depending on their upbringing or the region that they grew up in. Mm-hmm. And there, there's this there's this similarity that's there, mm-hmm. right, that you'll mm-hmm. find no matter where you go because they're used to being in power and all that. But the reality is is that they're used to being a dominant culture, but the reality is, is that they're diverse and Obama assimilated to white progressivism. But you know what's so ironic about that is that he cut his teeth in a politically mobile black church. You know, Jeremiah Wright was very explicit in terms of what the scriptures mean for our involvement in society. Mm -hmm. 
and the theology, you know, there whatever people baggage people have about black liberation theology is probably because you don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. You don't know why it was constructed. You don't know how it even impacts the way that black people participate in society. Mm-hmm. You can still have a soundness to your conviction to follow Christ with black liberation theology. Mm-hmm. If you're not used to hearing the way that is conveyed from that mm-hmm. perspective, you have an aversion to it mm-hmm. because you're saying it's it's a different gospel, it's a different God. Well, I could make and, this. And Bradley is a really good one to talk about this too because he he's way more new. Bradley, man, who's who's Aunt, this Doctor Anthony Bradley? Man. Yeah, man, give him his props. Doctor Anthony Bradley show. Man, Check out school, his podcast. The man got a platform. You just saying like Bradley, like because <laughs> he wrote a whole book critiquing liberation theology, but is nuanced. Mm-hmm. And so people, he will say something that's, a, he will offer a nuanced view about black liberation theology and people like accuse him of being a liberal. He's like, fool, I wrote a whole book critiquing black liberation theology. Like you can't, yeah, so. That's Twitter. Yeah. It yeah. gives you like, you know, it gives you opportunity to, to maybe see kind of the extremes of the broader critiques. But the, yeah, the point sure. is, is like we can still bring shape to this thing as far as what it means to be the black church or participate in society. Like I, I definitely want to leave from conversations like this and looking at quotes like this with some hope. And, and it's not going to be realized quickly necessarily. I just think that the infrastructure steam still being built. Like we mentioned things like the and campaign that's black led, you know, we can also mention platforms like Jude three. That's oh, 100%. Black-led. Shout out to Lisa Fields. Yeah, man. Like, I mean, when she kinds, you've seen how she has unfolded a vision for what that Bro, looks like. Lisa's a beast, man. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I mean, she's going to be remembered yep. historically, like yep. as a person that changed the trajectory of the black church. Yep. And, and for people to, I guess, if you want to use Barna or whatever kind of polling method to say there's a decline in the black church, okay, maybe the historical definition mm-hmm. is being, but something new is being created. New, 100%. Like you said, like there's an unchurched generation. I mean, I encounter it. And, as and those are the issues that she's addressing. A hundred percent. And she's answering their questions. She's not, addressing their concerns. Man, they're not coming through <laughs> the assimilation track, bro. Like nope. they are not, fil- they're not fooling And they're not distracted by, and they're not distra- distracted by white gays either. Yeah. They don't care. They don't care. And it's not their audience. There's an audacity to it. It's it's more akin to like a Malcolm-esque kind of approach. Is there a way to see the the Christian faith that that mobilizes in in, in almost kind of like a um, not I want to say militaristic sense, but maybe you are militant in the way that you are devoted to justice like you know are are you are devoted to the kind of love ethic that addresses the full layers of all the layers of healing you know like i need to address what you went through Mm -hmm. in in this church trauma that you're experiencing Mm -hmm. so that you can be more whole in the way that you participate in society Mm -hmm. i think that's what jude 3 is doing so like if you build an apologetic base you got people like dr eric mason who's doing that Mm -hmm. as a pastor you've got these younger pastors that are emerging to reshape the vision of the black church and if they can align with some of this you know i think ideology and rhetoric that that Malcolm X is talking about and and set the agenda for the black community return to a place of prominence as, as a prophetic voice and leaders in the way that we participate and say look this is what we need we're not just speaking to this for our own political advancement we're speaking to the cares of the people that we shepherd and we serve that's our credibility. Yeah, and I, th- I think, too, that as we do this, we're going to have to find a way how to use pastors in this process well. Sure. You can't necessarily go to them for sociological, political answers. 
Yep. Right. That's too yep. complex. That's outside. But oftentimes, like, right, historically in the black church, the pastor was the one with the answers. The man up there um, is the one with the answers. Right. Trust me. I know. And, and so now we have to figure out how to use them strategically. How do you it's kind of like Ocean's Eleven. Right. He brings all his people in and everybody has a job. Right. And that oh. job is clear. Your expertise is this. What if we had an illustration to actually describe that? Oh, wait, we do. The yeah. body. Right. You know, like that's exactly. Many parts. A hundred percent. Right. And I don't need to be a licensed therapist at the same time as a well-studied red theologian. Mm -hmm. Let me find out who that person is. Mm -hmm. Let me find who has that specialized gifting and elevate them into their rightful role of leadership and influence so the entire body can be healthy. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's to me the credibility of the church. And and to that point, again, (laughs) we also got to ask ourselves, when are we asking or expecting too much of government? Well, what's our so, so at some point there may be some things that we do want to call the government to do to repair some things that they Absolutely. have messed up, Absolutely. but they can't not be the one that we constantly depend 1, on. Thousand percent. We have to take yes. that ownership. Yes. And I think the government, you know, and this is where it comes to like social programs and stuff like the government is going to have to do some some repairing. They're gonna have. They're gonna have to offer restitution. We can call them to that. We can call them to that. But yes. when it comes to the government forever yeah. being the one that we look to yeah. to solve this problem, because yes. poverty is going to continue yes. in all communities, even after the government does their thing to repair, we're still going to see poverty around us. Jesus tells us yes. the poor is going to always be with us. So once the government has offered repair, because repair doesn't last always. Mm-hmm. It's probably going to need to last a while. But in Germany, right, Germany did what they needed to do, yeah. and they moved on. At some point, if we really enter a process where real repair is taking place, it, it's not going to last forever. Yeah. After that point, is it still the government's job to take care of the poor? I don't think so. Well, well, I mean, this is this is it's great that you even mentioned this because there's there's a way to – I guess, envision this from a federal perspective, nationwide, but the local perspective Mm -hmm. on this, like if we can align with a practice of this locally, we will probably see, but then we're back to the media. The media is not going to cover it the same way, Mm -hmm. but we'll still see it. Like, Mm -hmm. so for me personally, like there, there are members of local government that have asked me and other pastors to come into a room and give perspective on what they should do. You know, now we have to have answers. Mm -hmm. We can't just be speaking in riddles and and just talking about vague spiritual accomplishments. Well, I think part of the problem, too, is that they're asking the wrong questions. You don't go to a pastor and ask them what they what they can do. I think that's the wrong question. No, no, no. They're asking what they should do as elected officials. Pastors can't answer that question either. I think we should have an answer. We should say, well, you don't do what you want. I think the body of Christ, I think there are qualified individuals in the body of Christ who should be able to answer those questions and it doesn't have to be the pastor because the pastor speaks to the individual and spiritual needs of the people in his congregants. And you have some exceptions, right, to the rule. But we're prophetic voices. Yes, that, that that can call out the sin, right? And, and talk about and the brokenness and the brokenness and come up with the plan and, and the vision. I'm, t- uh-huh. I mean, like, I'm not saying all pastors. You're right. Not all pastors you got some, are you got, equipped. You got, I'm telling you, man, like as, as I've navigated and this is what I mean. Like, so what, who are the individuals? If I was, if I was an elected official and I was coming to a pastor, I would, I would want them to critique. I would say, what are the real problems in your community? I think that's I like, what is the stuff that your people are really struggling with? 
like but like that's, that's that, that are related to the government. Implicit in the response of what do you think we should do is answering that because because we're coming from the yeah. perspective of what we experience, what we hear, what we feel. It's like okay, maybe I can frame this conversation. And say this is the, these are the things that I'm constantly encountering, and it seems like it's related to these issues that you guys are wrestling with, and this is what we think you should do to actually mobilize some solutions. I think that as a strategist, in order for a strategist to actually strategize, they have to be um, extremely familiar with all the possibilities. I don't think so. I, like, this, I think these, so. These are, these are like, look, this is the Old Testament, you may, dog. You may, have like, you may have like, hey, man, I know that like this particular thing over here, you may have one or two things that you've seen. But like, in order for you to create a comprehensive plan, but you need to hear from certain voices you, in order I'm not, to get I'm, to bro, the comprehensive so plan. So I've already agreed to that part. So that's they it. need to hear from them. I'm talking about the types of questions that you ask them once you hear from them. Oh, but but here's the thing: is I don't need the politicians. I don't need to direct their questions. I just need to be ready to give an answer for. So how about this? So to your point, I think I think I think pastors need to be prepared to answer the questions that they're qualified to answer and then redirect them. But that's to why the they're people, asking us that's, to, to, to the people because they don't have touch with the people, the politicians for all of their campaigning and their grandstanding. They don't know the people. We're in agreement on that. And, and I, and that's what I'm saying. That's why they're coming. Maybe, maybe it's me. I'm, I'm, I, I think we're saying the same thing, but I'm very, I've seen this, I guess so much mm-hmm. where, the pastors again are always supposed to have all the answers, and I just—I mean, dog, no, you talking to a pastor? Like I, I know, I know, I know what I can speak to, and I know what I need help but, in. But I think that you're even more culturally informed, sure, and so social, socially informed than most. Well, I mean, there there are more of there are more folks. I think in this coming generation of pastors, this is again like if we go back to the quote more politically mature, more aware, the access to information that we have on these phones, social media as an, as an effect on our culture is causing a range of conversations that may not have existed, at least in the public square in the past, the way it does now. So it's a, I don't want to say it's a requirement, but it is very important for pastors who engage now to be informed. Yeah. To be in, they need to be informed to a wide, for a wide range of reasons. It, you can't just tell people, "Hey, it's time to shout over your blessings." Yeah, I and, mean, but you, yeah, but you know, but I know, but that's the way. Like, if, if you look at pastors that way, that's what Black Lives Matter is frustrated with. That's why these new organizations are formed with the kind of political energy that they are coming because they're perhaps, like the black perhaps, church is doing nothing but playing. Or perhaps the pastors are giving answers to things that they're not informed about. Both. I'm, and, and Both. So, and so, again, I'm, I'm not saying that pastors can't speak into the culture, can't be, I think they can be extremely useful to politicians, legislators, lawmakers, and all that. But I think that they have people in their congregation who might be more qualified to answer some more strategic plans alongside. I think, again, because I think you need the body of Christ, right? There's roles for everybody. And that's and that's what I'm trying and, to and, emphasize. And so don't hear me saying this is the only way. Like I'm saying we need to be ready to do our part in this conversation. There is an entire historical perspective of the civil rights movement mm-hmm. that looked a certain way at a certain time that doesn't translate to the way it's supposed to look now. Sure. 
So that has to do with respectability, assimilation, all the stuff we've already talked about. But here's the thing. I think if you're you're going to be the body and you're going to exercise your role, then you have to identify the opportunities that you can participate effectively. Mm-hmm. And I think past, that goes for pastors too. Pastors have passed the buck in terms of their effectiveness in their role. They're just content to be in the conversation just to be seen next to the mayor and take a picture. Yeah. But you don't That's have problematic to say. too. Yeah, but don't hear me say that it's a part of the pastorate to be like politically and socially aware to this wide degree to where you're essentially relying on the politicians to fix it for you. Mm-hmm. Because at the end of the day, it's a both thing. Oh, I didn't hear you saying that at all. I guess I'm more so concerned, and then we'll wrap it up. I'm just more so concerned with making sure that when you get your 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 people in the room and you're talking to people that you're talking to the right people in the areas where they have the most experience and expertise. And when I think about the knowledge, politicians oftentimes are so disconnected from people. Mm -hmm. Pastors know people, Mm -hmm. right? So I guess what I'm trying to emphasize, because I want to make this clear, pastors play a vital role in engaging in these things. And if I was a politician that if I'm asking questions, to this one particular person who's a pastor or group of people, I want to know, like, what is keeping your people from thriving? I'm trying to make sure I actually understand the people. Well, we right. can't get to that part without the first part of actually having the the opportunity to interact with our, our politicians. And I'm not... Yeah, asking, so but we've already agreed on that. They, yeah. they 100% need to talk to pastors and they need to talk to other people within the community. Well, yeah, there's no disagreement yeah. on that. So, so yeah. okay, so if we got to wrap this up because I love where we are right now, like yeah. this, because at the end of the day, I think what I'm saying as a pastor is that we should be equipped to shepherd our congregations politically in some way. And I don't want to hide from that because mm-hmm. that has been a historical part of not just the black church, but church in this country. Mm-hmm. And, and whether or not... Other institutions are willing to admit that that's what's happened. And for me, I think what this generation sees is that that's happened and that we need to come out and be out front with that and say, like, no, we're willing to participate in this conversation, this ideology that affects how you participate in the political process. Mm -hmm. We're not going to hide from that because we have a responsibility to shape the way you are engaging in society. Yeah, I would have no problem from from a pastor from the pulpit saying uh, what Malcolm said, essentially, you don't need to be having allegiance to a particular party. Yeah. And you need to, you need to vote based on the issues and you need to inform yourself. But you, but as soon as you give your allegiance to one particular party, you've been compromised. Hey, if I, I mean, who, who, if somebody asks you, are you a Republican or a Democrat, it, the Christian's response should be neither. 100%. At least not as your deepest identity. I, I think that this uncovers, uh, I think, a possibility that we can unpack a little bit later. In, oh, yeah. In later we got to continue this conversation. Yeah. And I got I to gotta figure out a more succinct way to... Uh, <laughs> emphasize what it is. No. I think you hear me, I hear uh, but, you. but I need to say it shorter. Well, <laughs> I don't, I don't even think that sometimes it takes this long to get to where we're at. So no. go ahead. Give us the Thanks commercial. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs> hey, it's not the commercial, man. It's the outro, bro. Thank y'all for tuning in to make it plain. For more resources related to Malcolm X, please visit our website, makeitplain.co, where you can subscribe to the show at Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon, Radio Public, Google, or via RSS feed if you're a nerd like that. I respect that because I still don't know how to do that, actually, but I know it's possible. 
and never miss a show while you're at it. If you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on Apple and Spotify. Stop procrastinating. You know who you are. You know who I'm talking to. Do it. Our goal is 300 ratings on Apple, 100 ratings on Spotify. You can also share the podcast with a friend. Be sure to visit our website and download our free resource, Make It Plain Season 1 Discussion Guide. Season 2 is coming soon if we hadn't dropped it already by the time this is released. Join us next week as we continue our reflections on the words and life. Malcolm X. Peace.